I'm excited to continue um, through the rest of this month with our, st- with our series of Our Story, His Story. Now, some of you heard me say, okay, turn to Revelation, and you think, my goodness, that's an unusual passage to study at Christmas time. You know, most of the time it's Luke 2 or Matthew chapter 1, then we'll get into Matthew chapter 2. But, uh, but there's, a, there's a very specific reason for that, and that is that today is kind of the, we're beginning the descent on our Our Story, His Story series for this year. Now, we've been on a quest this year to figure out and to understand, okay, what is God's overall big picture story? What has He done in the past? What is He doing right now? What is He going to do in the future? And uh, we're going to spend these last four weeks working through the book of Revelation, really to see what God is going to do in the future. Now, I would argue that Revelation is a great place to be here at Christmas time. Revelation's central theme is centered around Jesus and his, specifically his second coming. He is Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. Our choir sang about that a little while ago. We sang uh, the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It is Emmanuel, God with us. But God wasn't only here with us while Jesus was on this earth. God continues for us as believers to be with us in spirit. Even though he's not here physically, he is here in spirit with us now. Emmanuel, God with us. At Christmas time, we celebrate the birth of our Savior. As Christians, we believe that we were separated from God because of our sin and uh, that God decided to do something about our separation from Him. And He chose to send His Son, Jesus, to die in our place so that we could have a relationship with Him and our sins could be taken away. You see, something or someone has to die in order for sin to be taken away. So God chose to send Jesus, His Son, at the first coming, when Jesus came at His birth, to take care of the penalty of sin that I had and that that you had. The first coming of Jesus brings hope for eternity. It shows us that there is a God who loves us enough to send His only Son to earth to die in our place. The first coming is nothing short of incredible. Um, And honestly, the first coming is the catalyst for all future events. It's in Revelation that we see most clearly the events of the future. It's the book that was written so that we would know what to expect in the days to come. Now this year we've been on this journey to understand better God's story. And and there's no greater way that I can think of to do so than to end here in Revelation. But you might think about Revelation and and the first thing you think of is some kind of weird sci-fi movie or something. Because as you read Revelation, there's some pretty crazy stuff there. In fact, you'll read about a guy with, with seven eyes, okay, and, and, and a guy with, with a sword coming out, double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. You'll read about things such as um, being washed white in blood. Where in the world does that make sense, being washed white in blood? And there's a bunch of other things that honestly don't make a whole lot of sense, and they can sound downright creepy. I remember for me as a kid, I read the Left Behind series of books. How many of you read that, book, that series of books? Okay, so at some point then you were at least somewhat familiar with the rapture and with some uh, events that could take place there, at least according to Jerry Jenkins and um, Tim LaHaye. There we go. I got it. Tim LaHaye. Um, but I, I read both. See, I was a I was varsity level Christian in this. Okay, I read the kids books when I was a kid. I was thinking as a teenager or something like that, but then my mom had me read the, uh, the adult version when I got to be like old enough to understand it all. But uh, anyway, that's a really side note that I need to come back to where I'm at right here. Um, anyway, people are intimidated by the book of Revelation, and honestly for good reason, because they try to read the book and they struggle to understand it, and because they struggle to understand it, they decide to stay away from it altogether. 
But what I truly believe about the book of Revelation is that it should be one of the books that we study and pour ourselves into the most. And I believe that you're going to see why that's the case as we work through this sermon today. Now, I'm not going to work through um, the book of Revelation verse by verse, much like I sometimes do with a, a book of the Bible. Rather, we're going to spend four weeks getting a big picture view of the book of Revelation. Uh, my goal is that we can gain a greater understanding of God's story just from taking a look at this book. Okay? Now, you're in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to start reading in verse 1. And I want to invite you to stand, if you're able to do so, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to actually read all of chapter 1 together. Revelation 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Verse 4, John to the seven, seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from, from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen." I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the, and the patient endurance that are in, Christ, that are in Jesus, who was on the island of, called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. To Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like the white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace." And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen. That the, those that are and those that are to take place after this. For as, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, I pray that as we move through what we're talking about here today, Father, that you will show us not only what your word says, but then also how it applies to us. Father, I believe with everything inside of me that the book of Revelation is an important book for us to understand. And Father, we may not understand every little um, aspect of it, 
But Father, what we're going to talk about today is some portions that we absolutely must understand. So Father, we pray that um, it's absolutely clear to us how we're to respond. Father, may we not be distracted by other things around us, but may we concentrate solely on your word and on what the Holy Spirit is revealing about your word. We love you, Father. We thank you for your love for us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. As we work through um, the sermon this morning, I've got three questions that I want to work to understand, okay? For us to understand. Here's, Here's number one. What is Revelation about? What is Revelation about? Number two is why was Revelation written? Number three is who is it for? Who is it for? Okay, let's start with the first question there. What is it about? What is Revelation about? And actually we find the answer to this when you look at the very first phrase in the very first verse of the book of Revelation. Here's what it says. The revelation of Jesus Christ. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, revelation means unveiling. Um, unveiling is, is, is where you take, and let's just pretend that there's a curtain um, and you, you pull the curtain back and, and really because you pull the curtain back, you can look through and you can see clearly what's there. This is the unveiling, the pulling back of Jesus Christ. Now the question comes up, is it Jesus that's doing the unveiling or is it Jesus that's being unveiled? And the answer is yes, it's, it's, it's both. Um, Jesus is both being revealed and he's doing the revealing about himself and the things that are to come. Now in, short, in order to truly understand this book of Revelation, you've got to go back and, and gain a historical setting understanding, Okay. So I want to go back here for just a moment so we can talk about the historical setting of this book. Revelation is written by the Apostle John. John is exiled on the Isle of Patmos after a botched execution attempt. The Roman emperor is an emperor by the name of Domitian. Okay, Domitian was a cruel dictator who hated Christians because Christians chose to worship God rather than worship him. So he did everything he could to annihilate all Christians that he came across. He launched a wave of persecution that made the persecution that took place under Nero look like a cakewalk. Um, as a part of this, Domitian would round up all the Christians that he could, and he would mass kill them in the Roman Colosseums. Thousands upon thousands of people would come and they would just watch Christians be killed in a variety of torturous ways. There's a historian by the name of uh, Tertullian who, during the second century, wrote a book entitled The Prescription of Heretics, in which he told the story of how the Apostle John was brought into one of those Colosseums and placed into a boiling pot of oil. Now, that boiling oil would not kill John. And according to Tertullian, the entire Colosseum was converted to Christianity when they saw this miracle of God at work. Now, when Domitian realized that he couldn't kill John, uh, he did the, best, the next best thing, and he sentenced him to a life of solitude and a life of isolation on the Isle of Patmos. Now, that's how, from tradition, we understand John got to the Isle of Patmos. But regardless of how it happened, we've, we know from right here in the first chapter of Revelation that John is indeed stranded on that Isle of Patmos, and that Jesus appears to him, and he instructs him to write a book revealing Jesus and revealing what Christians could expect in the future. Now, Jesus does not come to John. I find it interesting here that Jesus does not come to John and tell him that everything's going to get better and that that life is just going to get easier. In fact, as we move through the book of Revelation, one of the things that you're going to find as you read that is that instead of that, 
in essence, it's Jesus saying, hey, things are going to get tougher. They're going to get much, much worse for you as Christians. Now, contrary to popular opinion, I don't know if you thought this or maybe you've been told this, but the call to follow Jesus is never, ever, ever a call to comfort. It's never a call to a life of ease. It's always accompanied by a call to sacrifice ourselves on the altar of eternal significance. There's a common misconception in the church today that, is, that it says that um, if you proclaim to be a Christian, then you are owed a life of health, a life of wealth, or um, maybe a big house and, and, and a lot of cars. But that is simply not the case. In fact, nowhere in Scripture do we find anything like that. Rather, being a Christian is going to lead to sacrifice to some extent. Well, these are believers that would have known that very, very well. They were being heavily, heavily persecuted. And so now Jesus is coming to John to present to him, not only himself, but also to present to John, here's what you can expect in the future. We're going to talk more about that here in just a moment. The book of Revelation is a reminder that we as humans only have significance because God gives us that significance through the person and work of Jesus. Even persecutions and hardships don't really matter all that much in this life because we have another life that we're looking forward to in the future. So even as people would have, these believers would have been reading the book of Revelation, they would have seen, you know what? I am in a hard, hard state right now. I'm being persecuted. Christians are being killed. Family members are being ripped away from family members. But yet this gave them hope for the future. They know, you know what? I have an eternal hope that is there. Look ahead at verse 19 in, verse, in chapter 1. Verse 19. Look at what's written there. Jesus says, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. Now, this is an outline for the book of Revelation itself, okay? He's saying, Jesus, Jesus is talking to John there. He tells him to write the things he has seen. So the history, this is chapter 1 that we find here in, in Revelation. Chapter 1 is what John has seen. Then there's the things that are which is the letters to the churches, which is in chapters 2 and 3. We're going to get to that next week. So the things that are. And then what is to take place later, the prophetic portion of this book, which is chapters 4 all the way through chapter 22. So what is Revelation all about? We're going to sum it up. We're going to sum it up easily here. What is Revelation all about? It is about the unveiling, the revealing of Jesus, and the things that are to come. Okay? Everybody got that? We're on the same page with that? Okay, good. Now let's move to the second question. Why was it written? Why was the book of Revelation written? Sometimes um, there's people who think that the book of Revelation was written so that they can predict down to the day everything that's going to happen in the future. There's some people that think that. Um, I, I get frustrated sometimes with some of these modern-day prophets who say this and this and this and this are going to happen. And, you know, sometimes they have a little bit of biblical basis for it. Other times it's just their opinion. Now, here's an example for you. If you lived back during the late 80s, you probably, and you were a believer, actually, if you, even if you weren't a believer, there's a good chance you heard of a man by the name of Edgar, Edgar Wissahunt. Wissahunt. He's a NASA, NASA engineer, and he was a self-proclaimed Bible scholar who wrote a book in 1988 entitled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988. How many of you um, heard of that book? Okay, how many of you read it, believe in it? All right, good. All hands are down. That's great. Um, anyway, specifically, uh, he predicted that the rapture was going to take place between September the 11th and September the 13th of that year. Now, 300,000 copies were sent for free to pastors all over the country. 
And there's an additional 4.5 million copies that were bought by people to read. Now, that's a whole lot of books. Wissahunt was even quoted as saying, Only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. In other words, if the Bible, I'm only wrong if the Bible is wrong, is what he says. Well, you can guess what happened. Um, No rapture took place. September the 13th passed by with no rapture. That should have been, honestly, no surprise to anybody who knows their Bible. Because if you go back and you read even what Jesus had to say in Matthew chapter 24, those letters in red, he said, hey, nobody knows. (laughs) I don't even know, Jesus says. Only the Father in heaven knows. We're actually going to look at that passage here in a couple of moments. But people try all the time to say that they know things that no man can truly know. And they often use the book of Revelation to prove their point. But that's not why Revelation was written. In fact, I believe that at its core, Revelation was written for two reasons. All right, and here's the first one. It's to communicate urgency. And you want to write that down. The book of Revelation was written, number one, to communicate urgency. As you read through the book of Revelation, you see this urgency that's communicated. Just in the passage we read today, verse 1, things that must soon take place. Into verse 3, the time is near. Verse 7, behold, or in other words, look, he is coming. Right off the bat, there's this urgency that's communicated. Jesus is going to come again, and it's going to lead to the end of the world as we know it. 129 times in the Bible, we've got references to the first coming of Jesus. But 329 times, we've got references to the second coming of Jesus. The Bible talks a whole lot more about the second coming of Jesus than it does about the first coming of Jesus. That tells me it's pretty important. You? Yeah? We think the Bible has a whole lot to say about Jesus' birth, and honestly, it it does. But it's got a whole lot more to say about the second coming of Jesus than about the first coming. We have a whole holiday here that's celebrating the first coming of Jesus. Sometimes I think we should have a holiday to celebrate when the second coming of Jesus is going to come in the future, even though we don't know when it's going to come, and we may have one, then it comes. I don't need one. I'm going to move on. Here we go. (laughs) Folks, listen, I think think a lot of times we talk a whole lot more about Jesus' birth because it's a whole lot easier to talk about the coming of a baby that's born in a manger than it is to talk about the coming of a victorious baby king who will bring judgment on everyone who has rejected him. It's a lot easier to talk about the baby born in the manger. Everybody loves a baby. A lot more difficult to talk about a victorious king who's bringing judgment to the earth. When Jesus was on this earth, he had, he had a whole lot to say himself about the second coming. I, I mentioned Matthew chapter 24 a couple of moments ago. Take your Bibles and turn there. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at what Jesus had to say. Jesus is already here on this earth. It's not long before he's going to ascend to heaven. He will be in heaven until the day he comes back. Here's what he has to say. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start reading in verse 42. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. That if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would have not let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Let me pause there for a second. How many of you know when a thief is going to show up at your house? I had one little kid raise his hand down here. 
We don't know when a thief is going to show up at our house. Therefore, we stay ready. You continue reading in verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus goes on from this point to tell two stories. He tells a story of a man returning um, for his wedding feast. He also tells a story of the talents. In the first story, there's the five wise virgins who fill their lamps immediately because it might be tonight that the bridegroom comes back. The other five, foolish, delayed, and they said, ah, oh, it's probably not going to be tonight. And honestly, as time goes on, it seems like these foolish virgins were the ones who were right because they wait and they wait and they wait and they wait. It seems like the master's never coming back. There's a good chance that some of them even began to doubt whether Jesus was coming back at all. But then on a night when no one was expecting, he came. Five of them were prepared because they, were, they had lived from the very beginning as if the master was going to come that evening. Their life was lived in expectancy. But then there's a story where the master leaves the country. He gives each one of his servants some money so that they can invest it for him. Two of the servants invest the money right away. Um, the one man, he just simply chooses to sit on the money. The master returns and wants to know what they've done with it. Two of those servants were prepared. They had been faithful with what they had been given by their master. The other one was not prepared at all. He had not been faithful with what he had been given. He just assumed that, you know what, maybe I'll be dead by the time the master comes back. Or maybe I won't be working for this master anymore. Regardless of whatever it was, he wasn't ready when the master came back. Now, both of those stories tell us the same thing. Those people forgot that today might be the day that Jesus returns. They're not watching anymore. The book of Revelation was written to keep the urgency of the mission right in front of us. The book of Revelation is written so that we can keep the urgency of the mission right in front of us and never ever forget or delay in what God's commanded us to do. When I was a kid, I thought about the rapture all the time. I really did. And, and I think maybe for many of you, when you, were, when you were a child, you thought about the rapture a lot. Now, one of the reasons I thought about the rapture was because I was thinking there's a whole lot of things I want to experience in life before Jesus comes back, right? And I was kind of hoping he wouldn't come back, so I got to experience some of those things. But then as you get older, and this is something I found with myself, as I got older, I stopped thinking about the rapture as much. And I don't know all the reasons for that. But that's the reality of, I think, what's taking place in, in my life. As a kid, I thought about it all the time. Now, I don't really think about the rapture all that much. But as I read the book of Revelation, I realize the urgency with which I should live this life because of the inevitability that Jesus is going to come back at some point. Folks, what do you think might happen if we all viewed ourselves as talents to be resourced well for the kingdom of God rather than puppets who are just along for the ride of life. What might happen if we chose to view life with a sense of urgency because our Savior is coming back instead of just coasting through life with a flippant or, or, or superficial mindset? 
I'm convinced that the early church was so explosive in their growth and they were so explosive in their effectiveness for the kingdom of God because they were so convinced that the inevitable imminent return of Jesus was coming and they knew that they had a job to do. So they set themselves about doing that job before Jesus came back. I firmly believe they were convinced that Jesus was going to be in heaven and he was going to come back during their lifetimes. So they said, we're going to do everything we can to follow through with the mission he's given us in the time we've got left. We see the results of that. Folks, the success of the early church didn't come because they had the greatest preachers or they had the most beautiful churches. It came because they had an urgency for doing the work of the Lord. The book of Revelation was written about 60 years after the launch of the church. So after the day of Pentecost, about 60 years after that. 60 years would have been about the time where most of that first generation of believers had died off. Maybe they'd been killed because of persecution, or maybe they had just died due to old age. But many of them were dying off. There's a second generation of believers that are coming, and and they had never seen Jesus before. They had never laid eyes on Jesus before. There was even a whole lot less witnesses who had laid eyes on Jesus in person. I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't believe timing is a coincidence. I believe the timing of this book and when it came 60 years after the launch of the church was because these believers needed a shot in the arm and a reminder, a reminder that their Savior was living and that He was coming back for them someday. I believe these were second generation believers that might have been struggling. Is this really worth it? Is giving of my time and my resources, giving of my very life, the, live, the, 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 the members of my family, them giving their lives, is it really worth it? And right, on, right about this point, Jesus comes to John and he says, John, I want you to write this revelation, this unveiling about me. I don't believe it's any coincidence that that happened right here. That leads me to my second point. And that is that The book of Revelation was written to provide comfort. The book of Revelation was written to provide comfort. As I said before, this church is experiencing heavy, heavy persecution. And Revelation gives us this glimpse of our Savior. In this unveiling, it gives us a a glimpse of our Savior in all of His glory, in all of His majesty, in all of His splendor. And honestly, it should do the very same thing for us today. It should give us this glimpse of, just like it did these believers, this glimpse of our Savior. It should fill us with a sense of rest and comfort for having seen Jesus in that way. Now, a lot of people read the book of Revelation and they're filled with fear. And I would argue that if you are an unbeliever, so you're not a follower of Jesus, then you have a reason to fear when you read the book of Revelation. But then for anyone else who is a believer, then this this book should, excuse me, let's start over. If you're a believer, then this book should comfort you like nothing else could. Just in the passage we read here today in Revelation chapter 1, we see the comfort that's provided. Verse 5, we read this. To him who loves us, talking about Jesus, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Jesus loves us and has freed us. That should comfort us. Look at verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who have pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. 
Jesus is coming again. That should comfort us. Verse 8, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. You know what that means? The beginning and the end. Who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus has always existed. He will always exist in the future. He will always rise above time itself. Folks, we can take comfort in that. Jesus is not bound by time in any way. Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, we read this. When I saw him, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Let me ask you a question. Any other time in the Bible when someone has a glimpse of God and all their glory, what happens? They fall down as if dead. That's exactly what's taking place here. Now, John is also the apostle that would have laid his head on the chest of Jesus. You remember that? He's the disciple that Jesus loved. But now when he sees Jesus in all of his glory, in all of his splendor, all of his majesty, what does he do? He falls down as though dead. That's what he does. But then Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, you don't have to fear. I was there at the beginning. I'm going to be there at the end. Folks, we can take comfort in that. Christian, listen, no matter what you're going through in life, you can take comfort in the character and the nature of God as seen all throughout the book of Revelation here. And thinking about this idea of comfort, I think about even the Apostle Paul when he's writing to the Thessalonican church. He says, listen, I don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, Christians, about those who have fallen asleep, about those believers who have died. And he then goes on to explain to these believers, here's exactly what takes place, and here's what you can expect to take place in the future. And then he ends this passage of Scripture there, and, and, he, says, and he says, therefore, encourage, comfort one another with these words. Our God is not a God of confusion. Our God is not a God of of anxiety. Our God is a God who is preeminent in all things, and he makes us understand and shows us what we need to know to trust him. You know, those things we don't know, it's okay, because we can still trust him, because he is that great God. I think about... The fact that so many times when it comes to anxiousness, anxiety, our anxiety comes most often because of things that, are, that might happen in the future, right? We get anxious about, oh, is this going to happen or is that going to happen? But what God is doing here with the book of Revelation is he's helping us rip away that anxiety He's helping us understand what will happen in the future so that we can have comfort, so we can have peace. Now, there's one more question I want to work to answer here, and it's a a short one. It won't take very long, but it's this one. Who is Revelation for? Who was Revelation written for? And first of all, it was written for the church. Verse 11, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches. And list those seven churches. Verse 20, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. By the way, I want to, I want to pause here for just a second. I love that Jesus uses the lampstand as a picture of the church. 
Uh, we, we don't really see this so much anymore, but many, many years ago, there's a lampstand that would have been placed on a sidewalk where everything else is dark all around. There's a lampstand, and it's something that you're drawn to, and it's something that as you're walking down the street, you know, hey, I can go that direction. I know I'm going the right way. I love this, this picture of the lampstand that Jesus uses. Church, this book was written for us as the bride of Christ. It was written so we could better know Jesus and better know the things that are to come in the future. It was written to, for us to be reminded that Jesus is coming again. Now, he might come while we're still alive on this earth, and he may come after we have died, but there is coming a day in which Jesus is coming back for his church. In everything we do, we should live with anticipation for that day, looking forward to that day. But it's not only the church that this book was written for. It's not only believers that this book was written for. If you turn over to the last chapter of the book, chapter 22, I want you to do that real quick in your Bibles. Turn over to chapter 22, look at verse 17. Here's what you're going to find. Revelation 22, 17. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. Folks, in this I see that this book was written for all who are thirsty. For all who are thirsty. An invitation is extended for every single person who lives before the second coming of Jesus to come and partake of Jesus. To partake of the free gift of life that is offered through Jesus. Folks, if you are thirsty for something that will truly satisfy you in life, when nothing else in this life will truly satisfy you, then you can look to Jesus and come. That's the invitation is given right here at the back of the book. All who are thirsty, who long for meaning, who long for significance, all who are thirsty in desperate need of life, come. What an invitation that is, right? That eternal gift of life is freely available for anyone, anyone at all who would like to partake of it. There's no better way that I can think of to celebrate Christmas than to repent of our sin and to give our life to Jesus. And I want to encourage you here this morning, if you are here and you're a believer, then I want to tell you that we have hope unlike anything else that this world can offer. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus alone as your salvation, you might be thinking, you know what, I'm thirsty for that life that Pastor Kivett's talking about. Then come. It's free. I'll be happy to show you how to receive it. We're going to sing a song here in a couple of moments, and you know the song, Joy to the World, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. We're going to sing that song together, and, and it doesn't have to be during that song, maybe after the song. I'll be right up here near the front. I want to encourage you to come and, and see me. Say, you know what? I want to know more about that. Church, would you pray with me? Our Father, I... Um, I'm excited about just these few weeks we get to spend here in the book of Revelation. 
But my, my excitement is, is hinged more on the unveiling of Jesus that we get to experience in these several weeks than anything else. Father, for every single person in this room and within the sound of my voice who is a follower of Jesus, they've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior. They've repented of their sin. And Father, would you fill us continually with an urgency to fulfill the mission that you've given us? Father, would we be comforted by the words that are given here in this book? But then, Father, for those who are not followers of you, then maybe they're here today and maybe they've realized that for the first time that they're not. Father, would they hear the invitation that comes right here at the end of the, of the, of the entire Bible to all who are thirsty, come. Father, in these moments, may we respond in any way you would have us to respond. May the Holy Spirit have freedom to work in any way he would like to. Thank you for our time together here. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.